turn with me to John, chapter 13. Gospel of John, chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 18 through 30. And considering the betrayer of Christ. John, chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. The betrayer of Christ. Give attention to God's holy word. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him, for some thought, Because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your word, and we humble ourselves now before your word and before your presence asking you that by your spirit in the name of the Lord Jesus, you would enable us to see and understand and to perceive wonderful things from your word that we might be strengthened in our faith and endure unto our heavenly home. We pray all of these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you pay any attention to the headlines, in uh, the headlines that deal with the church in America, some of the words that come to mind are not encouraging. Adultery, embezzlement, abuse, scandal, apostasy, denial of the faith, all manner of moral failure is evident, not just in the church among those who don't hold public office, but sadly amongst those who hold high public office. A couple of years ago, there was a minister in one of the Scottish churches. Now, when I say one of the Scottish churches, this was one of the good Scottish churches. The the old Church of Scotland is is pretty much liberal at this point, but there are several faithful Scottish Presbyterian denominations. And one of the most prominent ministers in that denomination was outed for having an affair with his secretary. Recently, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church at our General Assembly, uh, an officer of our General Assembly was accused of making very insensitive and, uh, at one level, abusive racist comments. These are the kind of things that make the headlines. These are the kind of things that the world, when it looks at the church, sees and then uses as an excuse to not believe. They use these things as an excuse not to join the church, not to submit to Christ, because they point to the betrayers of Christ and say, look at you people. How can you call yourselves Christians? Well, the world is one thing, but inside the church is another. And oftentimes when we hear these kind of betrayals of Christianity and betrayals of Christ, it can be a shock to our system. It can cause us to question, what what were we doing? What, what is, what's happening that the ministers and the men that we had trusted fail in such a way? Perhaps many of you know personal stories 
in your own family of ministers who have betrayed Christ through some kind of moral failure and the difficulty and the struggle that that brings. I know several stories like this in my personal circle. Perhaps you have several stories as well. What we're going to find in this passage is that these stories, the presence of betrayers of Christ, is actually no reason to doubt Christ. It's no reason at all to doubt the truth of the gospel, nor is it any reason at all to doubt the authority and the place of ministers of the gospel. Rather, the presence of the betrayers of Christ is actually good reason to trust in Christ. And what we're going to see in particular in this passage is that Christ, Christ himself, outs the betrayer in their midst. And he does this to confirm his own identity and to strengthen the faith of the disciples. Christ exposes the betrayer in their midst to confirm his own identity and to strengthen the faith of the disciples. We're going to see three things in this passage. First, the betrayer called out in verses 18 through 22. The betrayer called out, verses 18 through 22. And then the betrayer pointed out in verses 23 through 26. And then finally, the betrayer acting out in verses 27 through 30. The betrayer called out, 18 through 22. The betrayer pointed out, verses 23 through 26. And the betrayer acting out in verses 27 through 30. Before we get into the details of this passage, we need to keep in mind the context of this passage. Verse 18, the Lord opens this section by saying, I do not speak concerning all of you. Now, the context of this is found in verse 10. Remember what the Lord has just been saying and doing with the disciples. Verse 10, Jesus says to them, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. The context for what's going to happen here with Judas is this, uh, this privilege of being clean. Christ uses this metaphor of being fully bathed and cleansed, and then he goes to the foot washing. And as we saw the last time that I was with you, the foot washing represents covering over the sins of our brothers in love. It represents sort of washing off the dust of the feet. They've already taken a bath. But living the life in this world, their feet have gotten dirty, we cover over those sins. But what Christ is saying is that all of you are clean, except some of you are not. You are all clean, but not all of you. And what he's saying is that those who are clean, those who have been bathed, they only need to wash their feet. You, you don't take a second bath in the religion of Christ. But if you have been bathed, you only need to wash your feet. On the other hand, those that are not cleansed, those that have not been bathed by the blood of Christ, no amount of foot washing will avail them. It doesn't matter if you failed to take a bath, you can wash your feet a hundred times from Sunday. You're still going to stink. And so what Christ is saying here is, I do not speak concerning all of you. This metaphor that Christ is using of clean and unclean refers to being in a state of grace through true faith in Christ. When he says that you are clean, that's just a metaphor referring to those who are in a true saving relationship with Christ. Inwardly, by faith, most of the disciples are clean, except one who is not Notice also what Christ says in verse 18. Ultimately, being clean, being saved by Christ, depends upon eternal election. Look at what he says in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you, 
I know whom I have chosen. Now, there's a little bit of debate over this passage. What is Christ referring to when he says, I know whom I have chosen? On the one side, there's the, uh, there's the view of Calvin and others that Christ is referring to eternal election. That when he says, I know whom I have chosen, I know who from the foundation of the world I have appointed to eternal life. I know those. The other side of the question is uh, represented by J.C. Ryle, a very great Anglican uh, minister from the 19th century. J.C. Ryle and others would say, Christ is only referring to being chosen for office. Remember, Christ is dealing with the disciples. These are going to be the apostles later on. And so it could be that he's referring only to being chosen for office. I think uh, in this passage, it's a matter of emphasis. One or the other is not more correct. I think they're both involved in one another. Eternal election includes election to office. And anyone who is elected to office by God, if God appoints somebody to an office in the church, that implies that he's also chosen them for salvation. These two ideas are involved in one another. At least that's my reading on this. Now there might be an objection to this. John 6:70, Christ uses the same language. He says, have I not chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And then John goes on to say he referred to Judas Iscariot who would betray him. John 6.70 if you want to turn there. Uh, 6.70 and 71. Did he not choose you the twelve and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot the son of Simon for it was he who would betray him being one of the twelve. And so the objection might be pastor if you're saying that those that are chosen for office are also eternally elected to salvation. How can Judas be chosen for the office and yet be a devil? I think the answer lies in this. Um, Judas's choice, Christ chose Judas to be one of his close associates, to be associated him with him in ministry, not for the purpose of his own salvation, but for the purpose of him to fulfill the role of betrayer. You see, the difference is, is in this. We, we looked this morning at the idea of telos, end, goal, purpose. This is how we, uh, this is how we distinguish between Judas and the rest of those that Christ has chosen. The rest of the twelve... Christ chose for the purpose of saving and glorifying them in union with him. Judas was chosen for the purpose of him to betray Christ and to fulfill the role of the son of perdition. There are different purposes in the election of the twelve and in the election of Judas. And because there are different purposes we can say that ordinarily when God chooses someone for salvation or when God chooses someone for the office, he ordinarily chooses them also unto eternal salvation. That's my reading on this. Obviously, this is a very involved topic, and so if you have questions, please see me after. But I don't, I don't want to spend too much more time on that thorny issue. Simply to see it here, what Christ is saying to them, whether it's eternal election or whether it's election to office, our loyalty to Christ depends upon his choice. Those that remain loyal to Christ, the ultimate ground of our loyalty is in his choice of us, not of our choice of him. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. Paul deals with this doctrine of election in verse 14. Romans 9.14, the apostle writes, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. 
And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Here's the the point that Paul is making in this section. He... uh, uh, On the one hand, he wants to encourage those who believe in Christ that the reason you believe, it's not because you willed, it's not because you chose, it's not because you ran well, it's because God showed mercy on you. But on the other hand, he also wants to humble those that are proud, to say that those who are in Christ and are going to be saved by Christ are only there because of the mercy of God. Nobody can resist his election. And the fact that he has elected some shows his mercy. This does not imply unrighteousness in God because God is truly God. He is not beholden to us. He does not owe us anything. As Paul says at the end of our passage, does not the potter have a right over the clay? Does not the owner of heaven and earth have a right to do with his own what he wills. Now on the one hand, this this doctrine of election and God's absolute sovereignty is a humbling doctrine. It should be a humbling doctrine. It, It should bring us to realize that when God says he's the possessor of heaven and earth, it means he's the possessor of heaven and earth. When God is called the potter, it means he is the potter who has power over the clay. We are simply vessels in his hands. Now for those of you who trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, this is no occasion to despair. This is no occasion to lose heart. Because this God who is sovereign is not a tyrant. He's not an abusive father. He is a righteous king full of love and mercy. And if it were any other way, we would have no hope. But because he is sovereign, there is hope. And so Christ tells the twelve, I know whom I have chosen. This is the first way that Christ encourages the faith of the disciples. He reminds them that everything that's going to happen happens because of my will. I know what's happening. I know what's going on. I chose you twelve, and one of you is a devil... Because God is in control, there's no reason to lose heart. Because of what Christ is about to tell them in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Turn now back to John 13, 18. As he calls out the betrayer, he says, I know whom I have chosen, but that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Not only in this passage, but in several other passages throughout the Gospels, the betrayal of the Son of Man is described as something Scripture predicted. This was to be expected in the ministry of Christ, that he would be betrayed. Here in the passage that we're looking at, also in John 17, 12, I'm going to move quickly through these, so if you, if you can turn to them, go ahead, but please don't feel what you need to. I'm going to turn to all these rather rapidly. John 17, 12, Christ is praying and he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me I have kept, and none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Matthew 26, 23 through 24. Matthew 26, 23 through 24, Christ says, he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. For it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Mark 14, 
20 and 21. Mark 14, 20 and 21. He answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. And then Luke 22, 20 through 23. Keep your finger on this passage. We're going to come back to it. Luke 22, 20 through 23. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. This is the second way that Christ strengthens the faith of the disciples. He shows them clearly that this betrayal is something that Scripture predicted. This was part of the ministry of Christ from the beginning. This was written of him that the one who eats bread with me will lift up his heel against me. This then is the ground for the strengthening of their faith by seeing the fulfillment of prophecy about the Son of Man. Let me illustrate it this way. It is a great encouragement to our faith when we see the Scriptures fulfilled before our very eyes. Now we often think about the the joyful and the uh, sweet, gracious fulfillments. As many of you know, my daughter was sick last weekend. We weren't sure what was going to happen. But the Lord promises that our children are His children. In fact, they were His children before they became our children. And many of you prayed for my daughter. And my daughter is healed and she's, she's recovering. She's, she's, she is uh, uh, being strengthened through the prayers of the saints. That's a fulfillment of Scripture. James tells us that the, the fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much. God will raise up the sick man from his bed of sickness. Scripture is fulfilled. Faith is strengthened. But the same principle applies to the darker passages. The, the same truth applies to passages like this. When it says that the Son of Man will be betrayed, the Son of Man will be betrayed. And when that prophecy is fulfilled in your sight, it's a strengthening of your faith. Because we see that God's Word is true. And so Christ not only refers to election, He refers to the Scriptures, but He also prepares these disciples for their office. Remember, what Christ is doing, at least as John presents this, John's Gospel is so fascinating, isn't it? He, he, John's Gospel is so concerned about these uh, aspects of piety, about strengthening the faith of the disciples, about bringing out details Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention. In John's presentation of this, Christ's purpose is to strengthen the disciples. Look at what he says in verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Christ is preparing them. This is going to happen, but I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to think that because Judas is going to do this, I'm not actually the Messiah. In fact, because Judas is doing this, I want you to believe that I am the Messiah. He goes further in verse 20 and strengthens them for their office. Look at what he says. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. This passage occurs in other places in the Gospels and it's uh, typically used when Christ sends out the disciples to preach the Gospel. Matthew chapter 10 is another place where this is found. And what this this verse indicates is that the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the apostles, their authority when they preach, and their confidence when they publish the truth of God's word depends upon the truth of Christ. It depends upon the authority of the one who sent them. It does not depend upon the faithfulness of their companions. It depends upon Christ. Now Christ adds this here because as many of you probably know who've worked on any kind of team, 
who've been in any kind of situation, perhaps military veterans know this better than most, disloyalty to a common cause can be a source of great discouragement. When you're working together on a team, when, when you're laboring for the same goal and somebody shows themselves to be disloyal to that goal, disloyal to the team, it can suck the life out of that team. Christ understands this, and he prepares them for this reality. Disloyalty to a common cause is such a dangerous example for the rest of the team that deserters in the military, I don't know how it is now, some of our veteran brothers can inform me of this, but back in the day, deserters in the military would be executed. Stonewall Jackson famously in 1862 executed five men in the Valley Campaign because they deserted. And the reason he did that is for this reason. It will destroy the morality of the team that they're working with, and so Christ prepares them for this inevitability. He calls out the betrayer, he refers to election, he refers to the scriptures, he strengthens the hands of the disciples, but then his own heart comes out. Look at what happens now in verses 21 and 22. It says that Christ was troubled in spirit. This word troubling usually refers to a disturbance from fear. Most often it has to do with being afraid. And when fear comes, the heart is troubled. Sometimes it can refer to compassion. When Christ was at the grave of Lazarus, it says that his soul was troubled at the grave of his friend. In general, the, the point of this word when it says troubled, it means that there's a lack of composure of the mind and heart. The heart is stirred up. You know, sometimes when my children and I go to the park, we went to a park uh, the other day. It's a great little park. There's a creek. I can't remember where it is. Uh, but there's a great little creek there. And what do kids love to do when they find a body of water, especially boys? Grab a rock and throw it in. Trouble the waters with a rock or a stick. And the ripples and the troubling of the lake, that's what this word means. So Christ's heart is stirred up. It's troubled. His composure is disturbed by this reality. What I want you to notice here about the Lord Jesus Christ is his emotions are in perfect alignment with the truth he's just told them. Christ has just told them, one of you is going to betray me. And his emotions are in perfect agreement with that truth. You know, B.B. Warfield wrote a great article called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It's, it's often uh, tempting for us, especially men, to distrust our emotions. Because often our emotions are, they betray us. Our, our emotions mislead us. Emotions are easily manipulated. Emotions themselves are not bad. The Lord is very emotional. He shows all kinds of passion and emotion at different places in the Gospels. But the thing we need to keep in mind is that our emotions need to be in line with the truth of God's word, just as Christ's emotions are here. They, they need to line up with what God says is good and with what God says is evil. And notice the power of our Lord's emotions. It's when the Lord displays his own feelings about this. He displays his own troubled heart that the disciples wake up. Verse 22, then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Christ has talked about the doctrine of election. He's talked about the fulfillment of prophecy, the honor and dignity of the ministerial office. But it was not until Christ revealed his heart to them that it got their attention. And they started paying attention to what Christ was saying to them. A couple of applications before we move on to the next point. First, the truth of the Christian religion does not depend on the number nor the quality of the adherents. Let me say that again. Christianity is not true because millions upon millions of upstanding righteous citizens are members of the church. That does not prove the truth of Christianity. It does not depend upon the prosperity of the church, 
nor upon the influence of the church in the world. The truth of the Christian religion depends upon the truth of God who has revealed it in His Word. That's what's behind what the Lord is doing here. There's going to be a major shock to their system. And Christ is saying, that does not verify or take away from the truth of my religion. The gospel is true because it comes from God. Not because of those who adhere to it. Paul does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now we're not going to get into an eschatological discussion here. I don't want to go into that. I want you to see Paul's pastoral heart for the church. He says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you I told you these things? Notice that Paul has the same attitude as Christ towards the twelve. Towards the Thessalonian church, Paul reminds them, I've already told you, there's going to be a great apostasy before the day of the Lord. There's going to be a great uh, antichrist. At least one of the antichrist manifestations will be this man of sin. I've already warned you about this. Therefore, don't be troubled. Don't be disturbed. These things are going to happen. Don't let it shake your faith. Likewise, Christ tells his disciples the same thing. I want you to be encouraged, brothers and sisters, because there is great reason to ground your faith upon the Word of God. The Word of God is the only rock. The truth of God's scriptures is the only anchor for the soul. The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority is the only thing that can bear up in the storms of this life. Whatever's going on in your personal life, whatever's going on in the life of our church, the gospel is true because it's God's gospel, not because men give their assent to it. The other thing to notice about this uh, betrayer is that the bitterest enemies of Christ often come from the fold of Christ. The bitterest enemies of Christ often come from the fold of Christ. Consider some biblical history. Cain was a son of Adam. The sons of God in Genesis 6 are the ones that apostatized. Ishmael was a circumcised son of Abraham. Dathan and Abiram were Israelites who came out of the Exodus. Ahithophel and Absalom. Absalom was David's own son. That, in fact, probably is the passage that this originally came in the context of. David was betrayed by his own son, and then David wrote this, He who ate bread with me lifted up his heel against me. Absalom, Judas himself, and all wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ says in Matthew uh, 7.15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. This is a hard truth for our generation to get a hold of. Sheep's clothing refers to outward membership in the church. The people of God are called the sheep of his pasture. So when somebody is in sheep's clothing... What that would mean for us is that they are a minister or member in good standing. They wear the clothes of a sheep. Outwardly, they look like one of God's people. But Christ says, this is how false prophets come to you. They come in the clothing of sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. 
Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 and says, When I depart from you, I know that wolves will rise up from your own midst, not sparing the flock. And so all throughout the scriptures we find the bitterest enemies of Christ come from the fold of Christ. Just like it was with Judas. Just like it is with the wolves in sheep's clothing. These are not reasons to despair, brothers and sisters. These are not reasons to lose heart. In fact, these are reasons to take courage. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. says to the Corinthian church, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Because I've preached the gospel, and I've kicked up the hornet's nest. I know that I'm hitting right where I should be hitting because of all the adversaries. You know, when I was playing football, one of the things the coaches would tell us, especially on the defense, is that when you receive a block, the, the way to get to the, to the ball is to don't let the blocker push you out of the way, but go against the blocker. Cut across the blocker's face. Go where the opposition is hardest because that's where you need to be. That's where the enemy doesn't want you to be. And so this opposition, these adversaries, Paul takes heart from this and recognizes the Lord has opened this door. How does he know that? Because there's many adversaries. Because there's opposition. Because Judas betrayed Christ. Because there will be wolves in sheep's clothing. You can take confidence that God's word is true. One last argument to encourage your hearts with this. It could not be any other way, could it? Because if what the gospel teaches is true, that man is a sinner that cannot save himself, we would expect man to oppose that. If what the gospel teaches us is true, there is no hope in your efforts, we would expect man in his flesh to oppose the gospel. But if the gospel was what men wanted to hear, you're okay and so am I, God has a purpose for your life. It's okay. God loves you and likes you just as you are. Nobody opposes that. Because that's exactly what the flesh wants to hear. And so the fact of opposition proves the truth of the gospel. So Christ calls out the betrayer. And then he points out the betrayer. I won't spend as much time on these last two points. But just notice how the narrative develops. Verses 23 through 26. Christ now points out the betrayer. Notice that John says that leaning upon Jesus' bosom was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John himself. We know later on in the gospel this is John the disciple. This is, there's nothing remarkable about this in ancient uh, arrangements. This is how they would eat their meals. They would recline on cushions. They didn't sit at chairs like we do. And so probably Christ is reclining and John is reclining right next to him. So this would, there's nothing remarkable about this. It's just how they ate. Uh, he's, he's leading. And because they're leaning like this very close together, this whole conversation would have been in private. The whole table would not have heard this. It was just between John and Christ. This is evident from verse 28. When Christ tells Judas what you're doing, do quickly. No one at the table knew for what reason he said this to John. N- nobody knows what's going on. Because John is just talking with Christ privately. Peter asks him to indicate who who this is. And Jesus answers and tells them, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Now, this would have been a sign of great honor at this kind of meal. In Ruth chapter 2 verse 14, when Ruth is sitting at the table of Boaz, Boaz dips bread in the vinegar and then gives it to her. That's a sign of great honor and acceptance at the Hebrew table. Christ does this to Judas. He shows him great honor. He dips the bread and then gives it to Judas. Incredible honor that he's showing to this man. 
Secondly, the thing to notice here uh, in this exchange is that Judas partook of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, I don't think this dipping the bread and handing it to Judas was the Lord's Supper, but from Luke 20, verse, uh, Luke 22, 20 through 23, if you remember that passage, Christ says, the hand of my betrayer is at the table. And this was right after he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink of it. And then he says, my betrayer is at the table with me. And so I think Judas was a participant in this first Lord's Supper. And so the betrayer is pointed out. Christ does this not only to tell John and Peter who it is, I think he is also giving Judas one last chance. I think he's giving Judas one last chance to repent. Now let me be clear. According to God's election, Judas is the son of perdition. There's no way Judas can be saved. There's no way he could have repented without God choosing him for salvation. But according to the way that Christ treats him, Christ knowing this, still shows him favor, still gives him opportunities to repent. He has this whole conversation with John in private. Christ could have, at the dinner table when his soul was troubled, one of you is going to betray me, and it's Judas Iscariot. He could have said it publicly in front of all of them. He doesn't do that. He does it privately because I think in his mercy, he doesn't, uh, in his mercy, he's, he's giving every opportunity for Judas to acknowledge the goodness of God towards him. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. It's his mercy, his loving kindness, and his long-suffering. Christ is showing that to Judas. Now again, I don't want to be confused here. I don't want to be uh, misunderstood. When I say that Christ is showing mercy and long-suffering to Judas, this is to exalt the mercy and long-suffering of Christ. It's not really to say anything about Judas. It's really to, sh- to say and to show to us, look at how Christ deals with his betrayer. How ought we to deal with those who have sinned against us, perhaps will sin against us? We ought to deal with them the same way Christ deals with Judas. Secondly, when Christ points out your sins, it is not for your destruction. When Christ convicts you of your sins, he does it for your salvation. Just as he does here for Judas. And so when you feel the pinch of the scriptures, when you you feel the pressure of a sermon, that is Christ handing you the bread dipped in vinegar and saying, I have been good to you. Repent before you're destroyed. That's why he points out his sins to us. Well, we've seen the betrayer called out. We've seen the betrayer pointed out. Now we're going to see the betrayer acting out. Notice in verse 27. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. As I mentioned, Judas is a participant in the sacrament. He took part in the Lord's Supper. And that which Christ intended, his intention with the Lord's Supper is to strengthen our loyalty to Christ the wickedness of Judas turns this into an occasion to betray Christ. Remember the whole beginning of this sermon. Christ says, you are clean, but not all of you. You, you, Outwardly, you look like you're one of my disciples, but inwardly, your heart is not right. Judas partakes of the sacrament with a black heart. Remember what John says earlier on. Verse 2, 13-2, the supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. With that heart, Judas partakes of the Lord's Supper, and now Satan takes full control of him. Satan takes full control, and Judas goes on with his purposes to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. How careful do we need to be when we partake of the sacrament? The sacrament of God, of God the Son's body and blood is meant to strengthen your faith. But even as Paul the Apostle warned the Corinthians, make sure that you examine yourself. Because many have partaken unworthily, 
and those who have partaken unworthily are now dead. He says asleep, but that's a euphemism for dead. Judas partakes of the Lord's Supper, and it leads him to betray Christ. Now notice why this is. His heart is not right. His heart is wicked. His heart is not humble. His heart is not repentant. We're going to take the Lord's Supper next week. Be warned by the example of Judas that when you partake of the Lord's table, be sure that you are not betraying Christ already. Because though ministers and elders and parents can be mocked, the Lord Jesus Christ cannot. Be sure that your hearts are prepared. And then Jesus sends him away. Verse 27, what you do, do quickly. I like what John Calvin says about this. He says, Jesus hitherto had endeavored by various methods to bring him back, but to no purpose. Now he addresses him as a desperate man. Go to destruction, since you have resolved to go to destruction. And in doing so, he performs the office of a judge who condemns to death not those whom he, the judge, of his own accord, desires to ruin, but those who have already ruined themselves by their own fault. In short, Christ does not lay Judas under the necessity of perishing, but declares him to be what he had always been. So when Christ says, what you do, do quickly, Christ is passing judgment on him and saying, you are a man who is determined to be damned, be damned. Go and do what you're doing, and do it quickly. Again, brothers and sisters, one of the ways we can make use of this is by recognizing that there is a time for repentance. But that time for repentance is not forever. In this life, God gives us windows to repent of our sins. And if we do not repent in the window that he gives us, he may shut the door and say to us, what you do, do quickly. Go and depart from my presence, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. Repent of your sins while you have life in your body. Because there may not be an opportunity tomorrow. You may not have the option tomorrow. Christ may say to you, if you're living in secret sin, what you do, do quickly and be gone. Notice also Judas, the betrayer of Christ. Nobody saw this coming. Outwardly, nobody thought Judas was the betrayer. Look at what happens. 28, no one at table knew for what reason he said this. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Judas was the treasurer of this, of this company. He, he controlled the money box. And because he was in this high office, he was in an office of high trust, they had no, no idea. They thought it was some good work related to his office. And how often, as I mentioned at the beginning, those in high office, those in high esteem, how often do they show themselves to have been the betrayer of Christ through their apostasy? Why is it important to recognize this? Why am I spending time on this? Because I want your faith to be founded on what it should be founded upon. As Paul the Apostle told the Corinthians, when I came to you, I did not come with words of human wisdom. I did not come on my own authority. I came to you in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, preaching Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith would not be in men, but in the power of God. That your faith would be founded on the authority of Christ. That your faith would be in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that your faith and confidence would not rest in men, no matter how high their office is. Judas had a high office. And he was not suspected of this betrayal. Verse 30, having received the piece of bread, he went out immediately, and it was night.
Offenses must come. Betrayers of Christ must come. Because these things have been prophesied. The Lord God Almighty has decreed it. He's revealed it in his prophecies. And it must happen. It, it will come to pass. But woe unto them. For just as it was with Judas, woe unto them who betray Christ. It would have been better if they had never existed than to have been professing the religion of Christ and to depart from it. Now keep in mind the Lord's purposes here. Keep in mind Paul's purposes with the Thessalonians. These hard realities, and they are hard realities, it is hard to swallow the truth that people we know and love, perhaps, people that we have prayed and fellowship with, people that Peter and John, who had cast out demons in the name of Christ right alongside Judas. It's a hard reality to recognize that these people may one day betray Christ. That's a hard truth. These are no reasons to doubt Christ. Christ points these things out to strengthen our faith to recognize that Jesus really is the Christ, the Scriptures really are the truth of God, and the eternal decree really is what causes all things to pass. They have already predicted that these things will happen. And they all happen for one reason, and one reason alone. Look at the very next verse, 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in Him. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Christ's word is true. Believe in His promises. Repent of your sins. And as we prepare for the Lord's Supper next week, make sure your hearts are as white as the wool of a sheep and not black like the fur of a wolf. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have revealed to us the deep things of your word. We thank you that you are the sovereign God, that you indeed are the possessor of heaven and earth, that you are the potter and that we are the clay. We offer ourselves up to you this evening as the clay in your hands, pleading with you to mold us into the image of Christ so that we may inherit eternal glory along with all the saints and purge out from us all of the old and evil leaven. Bathe us, O Lord Jesus Christ. Wash our feet and strengthen us to remain loyal to you through the sacrament we will enjoy next week. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.